Right. How important is prayer? That does seem like not just a rhetorical but almost an absurd question. But when you look at the church and the position that prayer has in most churches, I'd say it's a fair question. How important is prayer? I'll tell you, Jesus gave us a hint when he said, my house shall be called a house of prayer. You've turned it into something else. Now, a house of prayer is a community of people related together by their common faith who commune with God, and I'm not putting the, 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 the period down there yet, who commune with God together. Together. Praise God. Talking with God together is the most defining activity of a church. Churches ought to talk to God together. God certainly wants to talk to churches together. Now unto the angel of the church of Philadelphia. Now unto the angel of the church at Smyrna. God talks to churches. Praise the Lord. Are we talking to him? So with the pandemic disrupting church activities, we have an opportunity to reset our activities in a culture of prayer. And so with that in mind, I've just been preparing some thoughts, and this is the fourth week that we're doing it, and just sharing them, just some random thoughts, some not so random, um, that, are, that are really meant to just inspire your thinking about prayer, hopefully remove some barriers to prayer and inspire some hunger and thirst. You're not going to, this should be one of the thoughts I share, you're not going to increase or improve your prayer life until you're willing to change your schedule. That really should be one of my points, but I'm going to tell you that. That one's for free. I'm telling you that a new, a refreshed, a vibrant prayer life is waiting on you being willing to change your schedule. Change the things, the appointments you've made. You make sure you put a doctor's appointment down almost a year in advance. You don't mess up. You make sure you're there. You have your device remind you of everything. We don't do that with prayer, but we should. We should be the thing we put down in our life and then build our life around it. So what I'd like to do is take a, take a couple moments and quickly just read the, the titles of the thoughts, not explain them, but just read them just to refresh them in your mind that we've shared up to this point. I think there's been um, maybe about 10 or 11 of them. Number one is prayer requires structure through teaching. Structure through teaching. Without structure, prayer falls apart. Number two, every Christian must practice both personal and corporate prayer. Number three, to be a praying church, the whole church must pray together. Praying church is not a church that has a prayer group. Praying church is a church where everybody who's a member prays together. Number four, prayer, not planning, is what makes the Holy Spirit the foundation of the ministries of the church. Number five, prayer cannot just be a ministry of the church. It must become the culture of the church. As I've said before, there's churches that pray when there's an emergency. Then there's churches that actually have a prayer ministry or a prayer team. But number three, that's what we're heading for, churches that are permeated with a prayer culture. Then there's number six, Prayer is not just one type of praying. That's why, we, that's why we only get a handful of people out involved in prayer because we've made it just one type of praying. Which leads to number seven. Corporate prayer, when we pray together as a body, is not just intercession 
or the reading of petitions before God, or even just spiritual warfare. There's all kinds of prayer. We need the dynamic of all of them. Number eight, a proper prayer life is empowering and energizing, not draining and exhausting. Number nine, prayer is how we access the kingdom of God. Number 10, prayer is how we access the authority of the kingdom. And number 11, finally, prayer is the heart of the kingdom of God. If you want to walk in the kingdom, you will walk in prayer. So the next, uh, the next three thoughts that are coming up have to do with motivation. They have to do with what motivates you and I to pray. Um, we oftentimes look at prayer with a sense of duty. I'm not saying that's a bad thing, but that's probably the lowest motivation for prayer is a sense of duty because we know what we do with duties. We, we put them down on a piece of paper. We number them, and then we might get around to them. So uh, the three things that I want to share with you about how to become a house of prayer require these three motivations. And the first one I'm going to share with you about today, and that is desire. And then in the subsequent weeks, I want to talk about desperation. And after that, I want to talk about delight. So desire, desperation, and delight are the three levels of motivation that cause people that not just motivate, but mobilize them to pray. So my text for these three are, is going to be Psalm 27, 4 through 6. David says, one thing have I desired of the Lord, and that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord, in the Lord's house, all the days of my life, and to behold the beauty of the Lord, and to inquire in his temple. For in the time of trouble, he will hide me in his home. In the secret of his tabernacle shall he hide me, and he shall set me up high upon a rock. And now my head will be lifted up above my enemies who are around me. Therefore, I will offer in his home sacrifices of joy. I will sing, yes, I will sing praises, as we were doing a few minutes ago, unto the Lord. Glory to God. We stirred ourselves up. We made an effort. We even worked on and practiced how to do it in one accord. But when the time came, we gave ourselves to praise. We gave ourselves to bless the Lord. You're not going to get the same effect laying on your bed humming those tunes. There's nowhere in some sense they that hum unto the Lord. So let me begin <clears throat> um, before we go into talking about desire and say to you, when David says, one thing have I desired, that also will I seek to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. David, David is a man of um, quite diverse activities. He's not a lazy guy. He's not a, a person whose life, he's not living in retirement. He's got a busy agenda every single day. When you read about David's life, you're reading about the life of somebody who's a doer. And uh, he does good things and he does not so good things. But he's never not just doing. He, so, so when David says there's one thing, everyone hold your finger up and say one thing. So when David says there's one thing that I have desired, he's not saying I don't want to go to work. He's not saying 
I, I just want to lay around. I don't want to pursue my work or my interests or responsibilities. He's not saying, I, I just wish I could just go to church and just lay around on the floor and pray all day long. What he is saying is he's saying, I want my life to be planted in the potting soil of communion with you, Lord. And I want everything in my life, whether I'm fighting wars against the Philistines, whether I'm ruling Israel, or uh, whether I am dealing with the issues concerning my family or private life, I want all of it to grow out of me communing in the presence of God. There's the paradigm. That's, that is David's desire. And we know that it didn't remain just a uh, passive interest. He got up and he got after it. He pursued it. Now I want, you to, I, I want to make sure you understand that the man we're talking about is a man that didn't have time to pray. Do you understand what I'm saying? David had, quote, more important things to do than pray. He had enemies to deliver Israel from. He had sheep to shepherd. He had a huge family that had all kinds of issues that needed some leadership. This was a man whose life was busy. He didn't pray because he didn't have anything else to do. So understand when... When David said, one thing have I desired, he pursued prayer. And we'll get into that when we talk about desperation. But you need to, you need to understand, when we talk about desire, I want you to stop thinking about it in the abstract, and I want you to think about it, how it practically looks in your life. If you desire something from God, are you going after it? Where are you in that hunt? Where are you as you're going after the things of God? Can you measure yourself? Can you say, well, I'm almost there? I am, the Lord is hearing me. Many of us have spent weeks, months, sometimes years wanting something from God that we haven't begun to do a single thing about obtaining. We want it. We want it. That isn't the desire that I'm talking about. I'm not talking about an abstract uh, interest. God does not move by abstract interest. Having a bunch of things in your heart that you want, I know you're thinking, yeah, Pastor, the Bible says that the Lord will give you the desires of your heart. Yeah, but before that he said, delight yourself in me. Where do we get to delight? And you find out what that means. Delight yourself in the Lord and he'll give you the desires of your heart. So just wanting stuff from God, even good stuff, even more of God. You're not going to get it. You're not going to get closer to God. You're not going to have more of the Holy Ghost moving in your life just because you want it. There needs to be a desire that is the kind of biblical desire that I'm going to talk to you about this morning. So item number 12 in our thoughts about prayer is simply the word desire. And let me just say to you, here's the thought. Desire fuels prayer. Let me say it again. Desire fuels prayer. You couldn't get to church this morning even if you had a Lamborghini. 
If it had an empty tank, you wouldn't get here. You need fuel. And prayer needs fuel. It will not move. It will not do what it's supposed to do if it doesn't have fuel. And the fuel that moves prayer, that moves the engine of praying, is desire. That's why the Bible says, guard your heart with all diligence. For out of it flow the forces of life. The first force is desire. Glory to God. Without desire, there is no praying. Without desire in your life, you'll never pray. You'll not have a real communion and connection with God. In Mark chapter 11, Jesus said, What things soever you desire when you pray, believe that you receive them. There are many people who pray in faith and never get the answer for which they have prayed because there's no desire behind what they pray for. They think they have desire, but what they have is what I would call interest. And interest is when you want something you can live without. You want it, but, but if you don't get it, you can live without it. That's being interested in something. God didn't say, if you're interested, pray. He said, what things soever you desire, when you pray, believe that you receive them, and they will surely come to you. And obviously in the context, we're talking about not all things, we're talking about things that God has promised, things that God has said he wants us to have. And so we are praying for things and believing God for things that God wants us to have. But God said we must have desire if we're going to receive them. What things soever you desire when you pray. Now let me tell you that when I express my desire in prayer, when I bring my desires before God and I express them in prayer, my desires are not just telling God what I want. Specifically, my desire is telling God I want them from Him. That's what desire is. Desire is not just a fascination or interest with a specific thing. It is specifically wanting God to give you that thing. Because if it passes from His hand into your life, then you know it's blessed. You know God has installed it. God has given it. I don't want anything that God hasn't given me. So what things soever you desire, the desire is not just for the new car. The desire is not just for a new job. The desire is not just for a better marriage. Does God want you to, to have your own car, not have to hitchhike to work every day? Surely the Lord wants you to have your own car, not have to hitchhike to work every day. Surely. But it's not until you want Him to give it to you that that prayer is going to be answered. Desire is not just snapping our fingers saying, I want this and I want that. And I sure hope it lines up with God's will. Because if it's God's will, I'll get it. But there are millions of Christians today living across the face of the earth that are praying for God's will and living without it. What things soever you desire, desire God to give it to you. He is the target of your desire. He is the focus of your desire. Praise the Lord. Look, prayers without desire are just premature wishes that are better left in the raffle barrel. 
But, but prayer, uh, excuse me, but desire, desire does have a weakness. Desire has a weakness, and its weakness is that it is vulnerable to competition. Desire can be extremely powerful, but its one, its underbelly is that it is highly competitive in nature. It competes with other desires. Desires fight one another for attention. Desires fight one another for preeminence. Desires fight one another for your time. Desires fight one another for space in your head. Desires fight one another for time on your tongue. Desires fight one another to be able to counsel you and advise you as to where you go and what you do. Desires are highly competitive. Notice that David qualifies his desire as he says, one thing. Everyone say, once again, one thing. David said, my desire is the one thing that I want. So, so David qualifies his desire by indicating that it's a holy desire, meaning holy means other than, separated from, set apart, lifted up. David said, this desire doesn't mean I don't have desire to go to work. I don't have desire to pursue my family. I don't have desire to go kill some Philistines. I got all kinds of desires. And, and I'm asking God to lead me in the legitimate ones. He said, but this desire is the one desire that supersedes them all. This desire sits on the throne. This is the one desire. So listen to me this morning. Desires are highly competitive, which is why God's holiness will not compete with other desires. He simply will step back until you're done with other desires. How many of you have walked with God long enough to find that to be the truth? The Lord will wait till you're done. He will wait until you've gone and pursued all the other desires. Prayer is constantly being victimized by the desire for other things. Even things God wants. How many pastors, including this one, have allowed the desire to wait on God, to hear from God, to allow that desire to be trampled and pushed aside by the desire to run on and engage in ministry. Go do what God's wanted me to do. I, I've got the vision. I've got the, I know what God wants. An eager desire to run on and fulfill what you think God wants you to do in your life has oftentimes been the one thing that knocks prayer out. Can you say amen? Knocks prayer out because we think I've got my orders. I've got my assignment. What else do I need? You need God. Amen. You say, oh, I got God right here. Faith in my heart. Oh, but you need him to have you. Amen. Jesus said in uh, Matthew 6 and 33, seek the kingdom of God above all else. And live righteously, and he will give you everything you need. So look, he, he acknowledges you've got other needs. Jesus knows you've got other desires. He's not angry at you because you've got other desires. In fact, I like people who have tons of desires. I find them interesting. 
To me, those are people who walk through life paying attention. When I meet somebody who's got absolutely no desire, I'm probably not going to partner with them in anything. Because if, if I need somebody that's going to help me get something done, I need a person who's, whose life is filled with ambition, with desire. They are what we call a doer. But me and that person need to have a kingdom desire for prayer, that it is set above all else. Can you say praise the Lord? So do you understand? Jesus knows that you've got other desires. That's good. But those desires need to be holy just as God is holy, just as he himself is holy. One time I heard a man preach and really inspired me. And um, he spoke about holiness. And he said at the root of the word holy is the word other, other than. And when you go back and you look at the etymology of the Hebrew word, for example, that is translated into holy or holiness, you find at the root the word other or other than. And that's where we get the idea of separation. It means other than. And so when, when we talk about creation, now let's use the word creation to quantify the world and everything in it. The Bible says, earth is the Lord's and all that is in it belongs to him. So there's all of creation quantified. The Bible says that God is holy from creation. He is separate from creation. He is other than creation. So when you and I engage in life, we deal with people and we deal with life and we deal with the world. We don't deal with God like that. God is other than the world. He is different. He is other than the world. And one of the ways to look at it is that God is pure objectivity. You see, in the world, everything is subject to something else. I suppose you've probably noticed that. It's like a pinball game. Everything's bouncing off of something else. You can try to be your own person all you want to, but you really are a composite of your experiences. From the time you were born until this morning when you sat in this sanctuary, other things have impacted your life. Other things have sent you spinning off into the various directions that you've spun off in. We surely want God to spin us off into the direction of the heavenly and of his purposes. But the reality, we live in a world. And God says, I am other than the world. And so God is objective. The world is subjective. Whenever people talk to you, they're always talking to you from their own desire their own perspective. True godly desire must be holy. It must focus on God who is other than creation. That's the only way you'll hear God say to Peter, get out of the boat. That's otherness right there. Are you, that's otherness. Go ahead, get out of the boat. Standing outside the tomb where Lazarus is dead, Subjective reasoning was in the mouth of Mary who said, but Lord, he's been dead four days. Jesus had holy, re objective, uh, 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 objective reasoning. He was standing outside of creation. And he said, Lazarus, come out here. Everybody had an anxious moment right there. 
Right then and there. What if it doesn't happen? Jesus had no such moment. He's completely objective. Your desire for God, you need to understand who you're attaching that desire to. God is holy. And so you want to keep your desires for God in a special place. And make sure that you don't subordinate those desires to the desire for other things. Because if you do, God's going to let go and step back. And he will let you swim and tread water in all those desires until you begin to relate to him again as a holy God. I am holy, God said, therefore be ye holy in all that you do. I want you to close your Bible. We're, I didn't intend to take a lot of time with this message this morning. I wanted to spend uh, a few minutes just acting on it and praying. But I want you to get this fixed in your mind. I don't have to beat it with a stick and say it 12 different ways. One thing have I desired, that also will I seek. Prayer is fueled by desire. It begins with desire that has been separated and set up, set apart. That, by the way, is a good reason why in your home you should set up an altar area. Now, that altar area could be used for other things. It might be a breakfast nook. But when the kids have left the house or when you've got time to yourself, you've set that aside. That becomes your little altar area. That becomes your sacred space, your sacred place. I'm sure many of you have a place like that, a place that you've identified as the place where your desire begins to reach out to God, a place where you pray, a place where you get on your face or you stand and you walk. In other words, the idea is that if this desire is one that God is going to answer, then it is worthy of being treated in a holy manner. It's more important than anything else that I want. And we express this to God all the time in all kinds of different ways. Lord, more than anything, Lord, I hunger and thirst for you more than anything. We feel it deeply on the inside, don't we? We feel that desire. So now you know God is looking into your soul. Is there desire in there? He listens to our prayers. I have, uh, I'm not authorized. I'm not in a position where I could put some kind of a, a number, an average on it. But just a wild guess. My guess is that of all the prayers that are spoken and lifted up across the face of the earth, I think it's probably liberal to say that 90% of them are never heard. And not in the sense that God doesn't hear them, but he doesn't respond to them because they have no desire in them. They are spoken out of competitive interest. And, in God, and until you want what you're asking God for. Don't expect to get it. Jesus said, what things soever you desire when you pray. Lord, uh, that woman Ruth at work just wanted, asked for you know, healing. I just lift her up to you. Do you think she was healed right then when you said that? I don't think so. But we dispatch with what? Duty. I prayed for it. She asked for it. I prayed for it. We think God is desperately sitting in the heavenly saying, just come pitch a few softballs. I'm just waiting to answer it. If you'll just say it, I'll do it. 
World history proves that that is not happening. <laughs> That's not happening. So what are the prayers that are being listened to? They are the ones that people have, a, have stirred up a personal desire. Do you feel something when you ask for that thing? Do you really have any desire? Is there any... People ask me to pray sometimes. I remember, I'll end with this, uh, um, in our church many, many years ago, um, one of the people on staff's mother, who was elderly, quite elderly, was having quadruple bypass or something. It was just not looking like a survivable situation. She had terrible heart condition. He said, would you please pray for her? You know, and of course I said, well, I'm the pastor. Of course I'll pray. It's my job. They pay me to pray. How many of you know those paid prayers never get answered? They never get answered. There's no desire. So after I said, yeah, sure, I'll pray, I walked out of the office, and I thought, you know what? If I'm going to pray, I should really pray. So I went into our sanctuary. I went down the hall went into the sanctuary, and it was dimly lit. There was nobody in there. And I just began to walk around that sanctuary, and I began to praise God and worship until a desire for this woman began to touch my heart. Lord, give me a desire. Give me a personal connection, because I'm not going to go a step further unless there's a, some motivation, a reason. Even if that reason is, Lord, I don't know this woman, and... Uh, she may be a rascal for all I know. Maybe, maybe the world is better off that she go be with you, you know. Even if, the, even if the reason is, Lord, for your glory, that you might, I don't care. Something's got to pique my desire. And it took me a little while and I prayed, but eventually desire showed up. Desire showed up. And I prayed until that desire was quenched, until I felt it was satisfied. And I, I, all I can remember is at the end of the week hearing from him a very excited report that his mother came miraculously through the surgery and she ended up living for years after that. What was God waiting for? Did he love her more than other people? Did he like the way I prayed? No, had nothing to do with that. What things soever you desire when you pray, believe you receive them and they will be answered. Desire tells God, I want you more than the thing I'm asking. I want you. Stand with me.